Welcome to ATRA, Voices from the Field. This sustainable agriculture podcast is presented by the National Center for Appropriate Technology with support from USDA Rural Business Cooperative. Well, I'm Nina Prater. I'm uh, with the NCAT Fayetteville, Arkansas office, and I'm here with Hannah. Can you introduce yourself, Hannah? Sure. I'm Hannah Smith Brubaker, mm-hmm. and I farm in rural Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. and I serve as a farmer representative on Northeast Sayers Administrative Council. Great. So can you tell me a little bit about your background, how you got into farming? Sure. I didn't grow up on a farm, although I grew up in a very small town on the Pennsylvania-New York border uh, in what we call the northern tier of Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And um, my first adult agricultural job was actually on a kibbutz in Israel, and I was working in the vineyards in exchange for a produce share, which interestingly is the basis of now our farm business in that we, about about 40% of our business is a CSA. So mm-hmm. it's been kind of a full circle experience That's for really me. neat, yeah. yeah. Um, so um, so started, you started out in, in a, at a kibbutz and you got a taste for, was yeah, it small so, scale kind of work or? Um, I mean, it, it was fairly large kibbutz. Um, I wasn't there very long, but it was on a, um, while I was traveling some in, in Europe and the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And all throughout my early adulthood, I typically had a, share, a CSA share from a farm or did a work share. So mm-hmm. I did a lot of, um, yeah, work in exchange for food in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, early on, I worked primarily in human services, but became more and more interested in farming. My brother farms in Southern Kentucky. Um, and uh, in a really, well, it's in Bug Tussle, Kentucky, really Bug tiny, a <laughs> really tiny place um, off the grid, Bug Tussle Organic Farm, and um, it's pretty hardcore, and I was really thinking I, I would move there at some point, but ended up meeting my partner, and um, she and I took over her parents' farm Starting about oh, close to eight years ago, we started making the transition, and then the farm transitioned to us fully two years ago. Okay. So the, the farm's been running for about 30 years, and we've been certified organic for 27 years, so before there was a federal program. Wow. And our CSA is, we're now in our 21st year, and we have some of the same CSA members now that we did. 21 years ago. That's amazing is, to hear yeah, about we're a farm proud with, of that. with such longevity. Yeah. Um, so your partner's parents were kind of visionaries. Yeah, actually, my father-in-law was a second-generation organic farmer. Yeah. So um, if our kids decide to to farm, we have one in college and one in high school. They would actually be fifth-generation organic farmers, which is pretty exciting. That is really neat. Yeah. And you're in Pennsylvania. Do you think the Rodale uh, Institute had yes, of had, course, <laughs> had a, yeah, an impact on that, mm-hmm. on getting started that mm-hmm. 
that early in, in organic? Yeah, I think Pennsylvania being the birthplace of organic for the U.S. means that we have a lot of um, well-established organic farms. Mm-hmm. It's very much a part of our agricultural tradition. And um, I was very excited recently to hear our governor say that he has intentions to really make Pennsylvania the epicenter of organic for the for the U.S. So mm-hmm. um, having the Department of Agriculture overtly express their support is pretty exciting. I had the opportunity a few years ago to serve as Deputy Secretary of Agriculture for, Agri- for Pennsylvania, and um, it was both a really enriching experience for me on a civic level, but also to bring, to have an active organic farmer serve in the Department of Agriculture. I hope added something to to that team as well. And our our secretary, Secretary Redding, is really supportive of of organic agriculture. So So that all helps. Mm -hmm. So are there there, um, policies that, or um, state programs that are unique to Pennsylvania that you were able to work on to support sustainable small scale kind of organics that kind of thing is you know well, I, like uh, somebody vo- vocalizing their support overtly is you know yeah. super important but also like I'm just interested to see if right. like has, has that translated into policy right. or things to help farmers well I think one of the areas where we've been really successful is the organic cost share program you know Pennsylvania has a fairly significant plain sect community in agriculture and so the fact that Amish farmers are participating in the cost share program and a federal program is pretty unusual. I think Wisconsin is the only other state that has such a high level of participation um, from plain sect farmers. So the department does everything it can to help farmers during that time of transition and then once they've transitioned to get them to participate in the cost share program. I think it's what makes it financially possible for so many young farmers to become certified. And then Pennsylvania also has one of the largest certifying agencies, Pennsylvania Certified Organic, which mm-hmm. does a lot to to support farmers. And then of course, as you mentioned, Rodale, mm-hmm. I also serve as a farmer representative on Rodale's Organic Farmers Association Policy Committee will be headed to D.C. next week (laughs) to do visits with our congressional members. And um, in my last visit um, with congressional members, which was just a few months ago, I couldn't believe the difference in their uh, organic literacy. It was Mm -hmm. really impressive, at least the Pennsylvania representatives and senators, particularly Senator Casey, who now is um, lead on a, on a organic bill to increase participation in organic agriculture nationally. So it's all... That's really neat. What do you, do you ascribe that to? Do, is it just becoming more aware in the culture at large, do you think? or I think so. Of course, a good bit of it certainly is the economics of it. Right. <laughs> um, and so Pennsylvania, between 2015 and 2016, doubled in organic sales from to now $665 million in farm sales, mm-hmm. making us second in the nation next only to California. Wow. And I think when you um, couple that 
with we're number one in the nation for direct to consumer farms. Hmm. I think that's that's a recipe for success because you've got not only that market edge with organic, but we all know that the typical farmer only retains about 16 cents on the dollar. But when you're doing direct marketing, the farmer gets the full dollar. And given that so many of our farmers are in rural areas and we know that farmers tend to spend their money locally, that all works together um, for a pretty positive outcome for farmers. So um, I can only guess that it's because the congressional members and state state legislators are as well are, are hearing from farmers who in some really difficult times nationally in agriculture are experiencing pretty good success um, marketing their products. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really neat to hear about. Um, so tell me a little bit more about your, your farm. Um, how, how many acres, what kind of products do you raise? Sure. Uh, we have 45 acres mm -hmm. and um, we raise about 50 different vegetables and berries, about 100 varieties all together. And we grow year round, so we grow in unheated high tunnels through the winter, primarily greens, of course. And um, about 40% uh, of that is through our CSA. Mm -hmm. We just downsized. Recently, we, we had about 250 members and we're downsizing to about 180. My father-in-law was killed in a tractor accident on our oh. farm this year. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear so that. that <laughs> yeah, it was, um, it's terrible to, to happen to anyone and you, of course, never expect that it will happen right. in your own family, but it does. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that gave us, you know, of course, an opportunity a challenge maybe to <laughs> just refocus on what's important to us and what we really want to be spending our time on and so part of that was making it a little bit more manageable the size of our CSA and then the other 60% of what we do is sell through Tuscarora Organic Growers Cooperatives which is one of the oldest organic growers cooperatives in the nation marketing our product primarily to Washington DC and Baltimore and then the rest of what we do is uh, direct to restaurants in Pennsylvania. Okay. So is the cooperative a regional cooperative mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for multiple yep. states? Yeah. And so then we also have about 650 laying hens on pasture and a small flock of Shetland sheep that we raise for fiber. Great. So do you rotate crops, integrate yep. the crops and yep. livestock? Yep. Yeah. So we're rotating crops, livestock, and cover crops, mm -hmm. um, either multiple times during the season or as far as three to four years. Okay. Um, and I'm a soil specialist with, uh, with Atra and Kat, Great. so I have to ask about your soils. <laughs> um, with such a long, you know, run of uh, organic farming, what, what kinds of changes have you seen in your, in your landscape, in your soils over that, over that? length of time. 
Well, interestingly, as a vegetable farm, where we saw the biggest jump in soil health was when we started integrating animals. <laughs> and so it's just like anything else in, in nature, the more diverse and complex the ecosystem is, the more benefit I think the soil has, and ultimately even the water with grazing our animals. And now that all we're learning about carbon sequestration, um, it's pretty exciting to think about how um, production agriculture can actually be working to improve soil and improve water quality. And uh, so my off-farm job, because many of us have that <laughs> today, is with the Pennsylvania Association for Sustainable Agriculture, PASA, mm -hmm. and we do a lot of on-farm research and some of the more exciting work that we're doing right now has to do with soil health studies on vegetable farms where we're finding that um, our farmers tend to have two times the NRCS expected soil organic matter rate wow. um, on their farms and they're keeping their land covered almost 100 days more a year than what's typical for a farm in Pennsylvania. That's really exciting to me. That's huge, <laughs> um, yeah. Yes, and this year um, we started including um, conventional no-till farmers in our soil studies and that's been that's been some really interesting conversation when you're talking about tillage versus no-till and organic versus conventional and how we all have something to learn from each other it's one of the things i love about pasa is that it's really a big tent organization and Agriculture is hard enough <laughs> as it is, you know, if we can't all sit down at the table together and learn from each other, um, it's just something we have to do. So. Absolutely, yeah. Um, one of the challenges I hear from organic vegetable producers is the tillage question. You know, how do you, you know, a lot of organic farmers use tillage for weed control and things like that since they can't use herbicides. Um, have you seen any, um, have you had any experience trying to do minimum tillage or how, do, how have you addressed that mm -hmm. sort of quandary that a lot of vegetable producers right. have? Well, we certainly try to disturb the soil as little as we can. We have done some uh, rolling of cover crops and, and planting directly into rolled cover crops and yes weeds are an enormous problem on an organic uh, vegetable farm if you're not using tillage. There are a few people in Pennsylvania that are pretty hardcore no-till organic vegetable growers and um, we're not quite to that place. We also Interestingly, in the, in the um, study that I mentioned about vegetable farms, now we only have 30 farmers enrolled at this point and they've got three fields each, but we're expected by this fall to have as many as 100 enrolled. So far, um, the organic vegetable farm that does the most tillage has the highest level of soil organic matter. <laughs> How so, can that be? <laughs> I know. So, um, and there's a lot of, you know, the no-till farmers who are participating are pretty broadly um, situated on that spectrum as well. 
and the soil we use the Cornell soil health uh, test and all of our farmers fall or I'm sorry the average for the farmers enrolled in our study is in the optimal level and they're all using tillage so what that tells me is it's more complex than just whether you till or you don't till mm -hmm. and I would suspect that there are many more things at play on an organic farm than just the tillage in terms of all the other things that are happening primarily cover cropping which is very a lot of people don't think about cover cropping on vegetable farms but that's uh, very common particularly in Pennsylvania and on organic farms and then the you know there might be pollinator strips there might be large buffers so a lot of things at play not quite as black and white as what we tend to make it be yeah for sure <laughs> have you seen a increase in cover crop usage in the recent you know in the past 10 years or so yeah definitely there are some areas in Pennsylvania that are in the mid 60% for cover crop adoption so that's that's very high that's very high i i'm i I'm not remembering off the top of my head what that, what the average is for the state, but I want to say it's getting close to 40 maybe, which I know is really, really high. It's an area that we're very proud of. Mm -hmm. What, how do you see, what are your hopes going forward for sustainable agriculture in Pennsylvania and uh, in the region or in the, in the country? I think I would have to go back to the beginning of our conversation when we talked about a big tent approach. Um, my hope is that um, we're welcoming enough of people, of farmers of all backgrounds who maybe just want to get their toes wet or just want to try one practice and can meet people where they are um, because we we've got to do this we've got to do this together if we are going to um, well I would just say if we want to mitigate the risks associated with climate change we have to rely on the one thing that sustainable agriculture farmers do the best and that is trust in the strength of diversity diversification of crops, diversification in, in cover crops, in where we're farming, how we're farming, with whom we're farming, um, where we're marketing even, all of that diversity is what our strength is. And if we can um, welcome, you know, for example, conventional no-till farmers into the conversation, we have an awful lot to learn from them, particularly vegetable farmers do. And I think that uh, those farmers as, as well have a lot to learn from what we're being afforded through through our diversification in terms of being able to, to withstand some of the extreme climate um, experience experiences we're having and so the more we're open to learning from each other I, I think it could be we can't even imagine how far how far we could go so as long as we can remember that we're all in this together I think in the next you know 
30 years, I, I couldn't even dream of where we might be in terms of um, being able to both produce food and have a healthy environment. That's great. Well, thank you so much. Thank it's you. It's been a real pleasure talking to you, and um, I look forward to that future. <laughs> I do too. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. You can find other episodes of ATRA, Voices from the Field, along with ATRA's other sustainable agriculture resources at www.atra.ncat.org. That's www.attra.ncat.org.